When I was a kid, about half past three, my daddy said, son, come here to me. Says, things may come and things may go, but this is one thing you ought to know. Think what you do. It's the way hot you do it. Think what you do. It's the way hot you do it. Think what you do. It's the way hot you do it. That's what gets me Mama, mama. Think what you do. It's the time that you do it. Think what you do. It's the time that you do it. Think what you do. It's the time that you do it. Welcome back to the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. Please follow me on social media. On IG and Twitter, it's at the Chris Will Pod. And on Facebook, it's the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. All right, listen, folks. I'm going to skip all the introduction for, you know, that little intro that I do and talk about anything because today's guest, I'm... I'm a little nervous because I have one of the greatest sports writers in the history of Cleveland sports. He's also one of the biggest personalities in Cleveland television. He's also another graduate of the mighty St. Edward high school. He was the 1976 Ohio sports writer of the year, a 1996 inductee into the Cleveland press club journalism hall of fame. He was a 2002 society of professional journalists, Distinguished Service Award recipient. Wait, there's more. He was the two-time Lower Great Lake Emmy Award recipient. Two times. In 2013, he was named the Irish American Archive Society Walks of Life Award recipient. In 2017, he got his just due and was inducted into the Greater Cleveland Sports Hall of Fame. And he's the author of four books. So please, welcome to the Chris Williams Podcast Hour, Mr. Dan Coglin. Oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling from glen to glen and down the mountainside. The Summer's gone and all the roses falling. It's you, it's you must go and I must buy. And so I, I get this, this neglected afternoon newspaper route, Robinwood Avenue in the middle of Lakewood. And I go out to get new customers. The Cleveland News, from the time I started working for them in 1949, was a paper that was on the the brink of um, of going out of business. And so I oh, get, wow. I get this neglected route, and I go out to get new customers. So the first new place I went to uh, was McGorry's Funeral Home at the corner of Robinwood and Detroit. And old Mr. McGorry, he signs up for the Cleveland News. And uh, he said, put it right on this little shelf here at the top of the steps, right in the funeral home. And uh, he gave me a nickel tip every week. And then I went across the street to St. Ed's. Now, St. Ed's was just starting in 1949, and it wasn't in the new building. It was in the what was once a girls' academy located at the corner of Robinwood and Madison, St. Therese Academy, a little girls' high school that had gone out of business a couple years earlier. It, it included one building, 
And then so St. Ed's bought about three double houses right next to it. And it was the, this was the start of St. Ed's. And I ring the doorbell, wow. and the first principal, Brother John William Donahue, answers the door. And I said, do you want to take the Cleveland News? I'm in the sixth grade. And he agrees to take the Cleveland News. And he gave me a dime tip every week. And so, so both oh. of them had me for life. McGorry's had me for death, and St. Ed's had me for life. <laughs> and so three years later, I come into St. Ed's as a freshman, and it was great. We would, uh, I was the second class to go through the present building. And that, that building has been taken. They've taken such good care of it. The gym, for example. It opened in, and that building opened, by the way, in the fall of 1951. The class ahead of me was the first one to go through all four years in the present building. Anyway, the gym is still immaculate. It has been operating for, for operating since 19, let me see, 51. The 51-52 basketball season, do you know that that first year that that gym opened, John Carroll played their home basketball games in that gym? Yes. No, I didn't they know They had that. to come wow. all the way over from University Heights to play their basketball games on those winter nights in the St. Ed's gym. Anyway, <clears throat> so that was great. Afterwards, why, uh, I go to Notre Dame, and I actually broadcast the Notre Dame basketball games for one year on the school radio station. I really wanted to be a newspaper man, however. And so I get out of school, and I get my first job on a newspaper in Lynchburg, Virginia. Lynchburg, that is now the home of Jerry Falwell School, Liberty University. Liberty and University, And I got to know yes. uh, Jerry Falwell's um, cousin, I think, owned the minor league baseball team in Lynchburg. And that's going fine. I've got my, I, my first newspaper job, and I'm loving it. And then uh, the uh, Soviets built the Berlin Wall in the summer of 61, and the U.S. response to that was to activate two new divisions, Army divisions. I get drafted, and I wind up in the 1st Armored Division. It was um, an uneventful um, two years of the Army, except for one thing, which was a very eventful, the Cuban Missile Crisis. The, uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the 1st uh, Armored Division was shipped from, not shipped, let's say uh, by plane and uh, railroad cars. We moved a 15,000-man division with all the tanks and, and artillery and everything else on rail to um, Florida, and uh, actually to, uh, to Georgia. And then we did a, um, to, prove, to show that the Russians how serious this was, that we were going to invade Cuba, we held a landing practice on the coast of Florida near Fort Lauderdale. And it was, that was, it was not, no fooling around. So anyway, the, that, that thing passed, and uh, we go back to Fort Hood, and we finished it. And in the meantime, now I'm writing to newspapers. By the way, I'm, I'm, am I, should I allow you at, points, at some point to interrupt me and uh, ask any questions, or should I just no? Going, you are Chris? you are fine. You are fine. Okay. When questions come, I will. I'll okay. ask. I'll definitely okay. ask. But no, so you're fine. So anyway, the, the, this is a story on how I wound up at the plane dealer, because uh, I'd written to a bunch of papers, and the of all the papers, the St. Louis Post Dispatch wrote back, said they'd like to interview me for a um, 
or, or a position as a general assignment reporter. I thought, this is great. I'll do well in the interview, and I'm going to get this job. And, and the Post-Dispatch was the home of the Pulitzer Prize. I thought, hell, I'll probably win a couple of those things. So <laughs> anyway, we set up the, the interview for the day after I was discharged. And uh, I, w- I was discharged from the Army on um, November 21st, 1963. And my interview went road with two other guys as they were all heading north and east, uh, getting out of the Army also. They dropped me off in St. Louis at the Statler Hotel in St. Louis where I had an interview. It was a Friday. And I had an interview with the managing editor at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, November 22nd, 1963, a day that will live in infamy. That was the assassination of President Kennedy. And the day, the evening before, as we drove north through Texas uh, and then through Oklahoma and then to Missouri, we went through that same, uh, went through that same underpass where President Kennedy was shot the next afternoon. Wow. And uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm getting out of the shower in the Statler Hotel at about 12.30 or so, getting ready for my 2 o'clock interview. And I've got the TV on, black and white TV, noontime programming on KMOX-TV was a lady playing the piano. That was their big noontime programming. And <laughs> suddenly she stops playing. And an off-screen voice says, President Kennedy has just been shot in Dallas. Holy, well, I know. Oh, all interviews are going to be off. It's, it's all hands on deck covering this story. And so I called the managing editor's secretary at about 1230, and uh, we agreed that, well, I'm, I said, I'll fly home tomorrow morning, and uh, I'll call, we'll call next week sometime to reschedule the interview. That's where we left it. I flew home the next morning, Saturday morning. And then the, the next day, Sunday, Sunday after the 12 o'clock mass at St. Clement's Parish, right there in the middle of Lakewood, coming out of church, I run into an old family friend, a guy named Ralph Novak. And Ralph, he had five sons, and they all went to St. Ed's. Well, one went to Ignatius, but four of them went to St. Ed's. And anyway, he had once been a newspaper reporter for the Cleveland News. And uh, he still, but he was now, by then, head of Catholic Charities. And he was, uh, but still, knew everything that was going on in the newspaper business. So we're chatting on the, coming out of church, and and the, he asked me to update him, and I did. And he said, well, the, the plain dealer is going to have an opening in sports. John Dietrich is retiring. What? He said to Gordon Cobbledick, yeah, that's a, he was the sports editor of the Plain Dealer, a famous man at the time. And uh, he said, he's a friend of mine. I'm going to call him tomorrow morning and tell him that you're going to call. So Monday morning, first thing, I call Gordon Cobbledick. Ralph Novak had already talked to him. He invites me down for an interview. I get the job. That's how I wound oh, up. Wow. People say, uh, how, how did you uh, get the job? Well, I said, well, President Kennedy got it for me. Anyway, <laughs> so, so um, 
and that's that started 18 happy years at the plain dealer boy the first thing first thing they sent me out of the office to cover was the golden gloves at the public hall that was the end of january and then the second thing they sent me out of the office to cover was the barons hockey team and uh, boy i was so proud walking into the cleveland arena carrying in my suit and uh, overcoat and carrying my portable typewriter it was uh that one, anyway, those were really happy days, and I was so proud to be a member, a reporter for the Plain Dealer. And by the way, back then the Plain Dealer had a heck of a reputation. Today, it's sad to say, it means nothing. You know, you call somebody from out of town, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Well, maybe they vaguely remember it, but back then. The plain dealer had a reputation. One time, I say I'm. Okay. Uh, I'm. Uh, did you want to interrupt me? Uh, did you want to say no? Something? No, no, no. Oh, that, oh, okay. I, I was. Okay. You know that's okay. incredible. The, the I thought you plain were dealer okay. You fallen. were clearing your throat. Anyway, no, like for instance, no. for example, I. Um, I remember the uh, getting ready. There was a huge college football game in uh, 1971. Thanksgiving Day. I spent a lot of Thanksgivings away working. Anyway, but I loved it. Anyway, um, th- this was the big game between Oklahoma and Nebraska, ranked first and second in the country, and they, they wind up meeting on Thanksgiving Day, beautiful afternoon in uh, Norman, Oklahoma. And, but, but when I called for my credentials, why they got real excited. And when I get there, they reported to the SID's office at, uh, uh, at the University of Oklahoma, people are rushing out to greet me. The Cleveland Plain Dealer is here. Actually, they confused me with another guy named Coglin that they used to do from years ago. No, knew him from years ago, but <laughs> anyway. But however, they were so excited that the Cleveland Plain Dealer had come in to cover their game. Same thing happened another time when uh, I, uh, the, I was traveling with the Browns at that time also. It, uh, for all those years, I was the, the second man on the Browns covering, uh, I would carry Chuck Heaton's typewriter, I always said. And uh, those are, then I was the backup guy on the Indians. I got to do all those things. Um, and, and I was the boxing guy, too. And that was, I'll tell you, those were quite, those were experiences that um, probably will never replicate. Um, I covered the era of Ali covered two of his three fights with Frazier in Madison Square Garden. What wars wow. they were. And, um, and let, let me tell you about the first fight with, in the garden with uh, Ali and Frazier. My God, they went at it almost nonstop for 15 rounds. <clears throat> and um, and um, Ali, taller than Frazier, and he was actually pounding down on, on Frazier's face. And Frazier was inside beating on Ali's body. These two guys, both well, well over 200 pounds, these are not flyweights or featherweights beating each other with their little taps. These are the, the power, those 200-pound punches against them. Oh, my God, what a toll it took on those people. And I think that we see it, we saw it later in life with Ali. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, Fra- Frazier... Uh, dropped Ali in, was, was it the 11th or the 15th? I've, now that escapes me. But Ali got up, and his both his cheeks were swollen as though he had a golf ball in each cheek. <clears throat> and afterward, 
Um, they took Allie to the hospital. He couldn't do any post-fight interviews. But So I waited in Allie's hotel till he got back from the hospital. This was at about 4 o'clock in the morning. And the lobby was crowded. Must have been 100 people there still waiting to greet their hero, waiting for the hoodoo. You know, not, not that they didn't really know that Allie was, would be back from the hospital that night, but they waited, and, uh, and as did I. And um, finally he came in about 4 o'clock in the morning, walked through the lobby. The, the, the crowd in the lobby just parted the way Moses parted the waters, <laughs> allowed him a path to the elevator. And he was walking stiff-legged, couldn't bend his knees, had to walk very slowly and carefully stiff-legged because his body hurt so much from those punches that Frazier had laid on him. And so anyway, then later the next day, why a few of us went up and interviewed Allie laying in his bed, and uh, and he was good by then. But to Frazier, a couple days later, they had to take him to the hospital. And Frazier spent several days in the hospital because um, he had exerted so much energy that the body turns out and creates an enzyme that um, the, the, his kidneys could not process. And he wanted, the same thing happened to some Marines at boot camp in Paris Island, um, oh, a few years later. And they, a couple of them died because of the same thing. Oh. They worked so hard in uh, whatever they were doing that day. And, uh, but, but anyway, then, then let me see. I covered the next fight uh, in, the, in, the, um, in the garden, the two of it. It, was, it wasn't as dramatic a fight as this. Um, Frazier won the first fight on a decision, and uh, mm-hmm. Allie won the second fight on a decision. And the, the third one, I wasn't there. The Thrilla in Manila. Oh, my God. Yes. That was, I just watched that on close order. But anyway, the... Um, I covered many of Ali's fights, the one against Ken Norton in Yankee Stadium. And uh, uh, but anyway, I covered a fight with, uh, oh, I think he fought Holmes in Las Vegas and mm-hmm. covered that. And that was when Ali was finished. And Holmes beat him pretty badly, as I recall, <coughs> although I'm 80, 82 now. And I'm, I'm not, sometimes I don't remember as well as I used to. But uh, those were great, great days. Um, and, of course, I, funny thing, I started on the play, at the Plain Dealer, really my first full-time beat. Started in the fall of 64 on the high school beat. Loved it, actually, at the time. I thought, hell, I ought to go right on the Indians beat. But I said, the, but I loved the high school beat. And I still love it. Mm-hmm. In fact, a funny I started at the Plain Dealer on the high school beat, and now at the end of my career, I'm now back on the high school beat of Channel 8 and loving that just as much. But anyway, the, oh, wow. oh, many of the, the St. Ed games, of course, were fun. The, the, um, the charity games at the stadium. In fact, I just, uh, just today, um, Tim Hudak wrote a, a, a big, thick, hardcover book about the history of the charity game and all the games there. That uh, Now, there's another thing that uh, many of your listeners won't remember, the charity game. That was a, play, a, thanks, a game that frequently was played on Thanksgiving, but uh, sometimes on a Friday night, other times a Saturday afternoon, but all, all around Thanksgiving Day. The, uh, 
the the, uh, the winners of the East Senate and the West Senate would play, and it really did start as a for charity. Started in the uh, oh 1933 or so during the the Great Depression, and uh, the a lot of these All Star games were started as genuine charity events. The first baseball All Star game started at in Chicago, Comiskey Park, uh, to raise funds for the the people the poor people who were in the bread lines. And that, that, that we started the Plain Dealer for Plain Dealer Charities, started this charity game, and they would draw huge crowds. By the late 40s, we crowd, had a crowd of 70,000 at the stadium to see two high school teams play. And I think that they were, they might have been Ignatius and uh, Cathedral Latin. And anyway, wow. so I wound up putting the, this is a story not many people know, but uh, I, want, I was the one who put the charity game out of business. Because the in the the late '60s, attendance started to to fade at the charity game. You know, th- times were changing, and uh, mm-hmm. when we had a crowd of like 17,000 for the 1968 charity game, I said, "We've got to do something to increase the attendance for this game because we cannot afford to." On the high school beat, I was in charge of, well, essentially the the charity game as well. Um, I said we've we've got to increase the attendance because we this is supposed to raise money for charity. It wasn't raising money anymore because the costs of of um, you know a, a union building, all the the union ticket takers and ticket uh, union ushers and everything, and the student tickets were fifty cents, and the the, the highest paid price ticket in there for this football game was two bucks or two and a half bucks. We weren't getting an taking enough money to open the place. So I said, maybe we can, at that time, Art Modell had started the uh, the, high school, the uh, pro football doubleheaders at the stadium, and these were suddenly, they were drawing 70,000, almost 80,000 for the Browns preseason doubleheaders. They'd get, the, the, wow. the Browns would play whoever they were playing, and then the, it was easy to bring in as a second game. You know, nobody nobody was drawing much for those preseason uh, games back in those days. Mm-hmm. Modell uh, pioneered new ground with a doubleheader and were doing t- tremendous crowds. Well, they could get two other teams to come in and uh, put them up for one night, play a game, and they, they he could guarantee them enough money that whatever they would have made playing their game in you know their preseason game, they maybe they'd have twenty thousand in Detroit for the Lions against somebody. He'd give them a guarantee uh, that made it more economical for them to come into Cleveland and be part of the doubleheader. <coughs> so I said, listen, they, they, this is so successful for Art. Let's turn our high school charity game into a doubleheader. Now we because that was fine. We'd have the the winners of the East and the West Senate playing, in for, and then we'd have to get another game. And so it would a, a great game would have been like Parma and Valley Forge. They were getting fifteen thousand people for their game that they would usually play in week seven or so at Byers Field. But we but the back then the Ohio High School Athletic Association was so Victorian in its thinking that to take two to add another game and you had to play a 10 game schedule that was all so we we had to take two teams already scheduled to meet in week 10 and have them delay their oh. game for Thanksgiving day and uh, the the best attraction we had was St. Ed's against St. Joe's 
week 10. We, they'd usually get their 10,000 at uh, wherever, wherever the game was played. Well, so here's what we do. We, we had 17,000 the previous year um, for Ignatius and uh, Benedictine. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was um, um, John F. Kennedy and Ignatius. They had 17,000. I said, well, maybe we'll get, let's say that we'll settle for 15,000 and we'll get another 10,000 from, from Ed's, and Ignatius, Ed's and St. Joe's, and now we're back up to 25,000, and now it's worth it to play this game at the stadium. Well, mm-hmm. that backfired. Because, so here was the, here was the, uh, the, the matchups in the first charity game doubleheader. In the first game, the East and West Senate champions were Ignatius and Benedictine. In the second game, St. Ed's and St. Joe's. Chris, there wasn't a Protestant in the place. The attendance didn't go up. It went down to 10,000. They were all Catholic. Oh. <laughs> oh, so, so we tried it one more year, and the same thing happened. Ignatius and Benedictine, Eds and Joes, and it went down even further. That was the end of the charity game at the stadium. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. <laughs> Instead of playing well, the national anthem, they should have played Pontus Angelicus or something before the game. So anyway, <laughs> uh, so, so that, was the, that was the low life, low, the low light of, of, my, um, of my being on the high school beat. But there were, there were great times. Boy, we saw the, you know, the... Um, and then by the, you know, what I, I like to think that I had a hand in starting the football playoffs. A hand that's uh, not, you know, in an odd sort of way. I, I'd been corresponding. I would answer the phone. This guy called a lot. I would talk to him on the phone a lot. A fellow named Jack Harbin, who he was lobbying to get a, a, the, the playoffs for high school football. Because, and it started because he was a volunteer coach at uh, Wycliffe. And Wycliffe was a small school that had some pretty good teams, but never got a sniff of the, uh, the state rankings. And uh, the, the, the smaller school, you know, the, here's who got oh, you, the perennial state champions in the perennial top ten. That was the, the, um, the, machi- the publicity machines of Maslin and Kent McKinley and and the All-American Conference, Warren Harding, Niles McKinley, and uh, Steubenville, and Alliance, those schools, um, they, they were, you know, the, the state champion usually was the winner of the Maslin-Kenton-McKinley game. So anyway, but the, 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 uh, once again, the Victorian OHSAA wouldn't consider a tournament for football. No, you play your 10 games and that's it. But anyway, Harbin conceived this way, which it became the Harbin system, the point system. And mm-hmm. uh, he, he, he would come. I said, okay, Jack, let's see. He conceived this system. And I said, okay, I'll run your system um, in the paper. This would have been the fall of, I don't know, 66. And um, I said, I'll run your system each week alongside my ratings. And so we did, and he would come down to the plane dealer 
every Sunday <coughs> into our library and go through the papers, and he would get the uh, the prize, and then he would call all around the state to get all the scores. He and his wife, and they did this thing by hand, Chris. The labor wow. they spent hours. By the way, this, in real in real life, Jack Harbin was a um, cash register repairman, and uh, <coughs> and anyway, so he. he did this, I, I, his rating, he had Metter, number one in his ratings all season. Metter at that time was in a small conference called the Freeway Conference. And that were teams like Painesville Harvey and, uh, and uh, Willoughby South and Wycliffe might have been in that. A small, fairly small conference. And I said, mm-hmm. Matter, they've got no reputation, and he had them number one all season. And so anyway, and I had, you know, the usual powers. The, there was my top ten. They were, and not in necessarily this order, but um, Ed's and uh, Joe's and Ignatius and Benedictine and Cathedral Latin and Lakewood and Shaw and the, the, the perennial powerhouses. And uh, and maybe in my ratings, I had Metter ten and zero. I had them in may, maybe tenth. Two years later, 1968, Metter opens the season by beating Maslin 19 to nothing. Metter, and so they wind up number one in our ratings all year, and that's when I realized, holy cow. Jack Harbin's system works. Years later, I'm down at um, covering a Miami of Ohio game. This was in 1974. Miami had a hell of a hell of a team that year. They wound up ranked 10th in the country and 10th in the, in the yeah in the, Miami, little Miami, wound up 10th mm-hmm. in the country in the AP and UPI ratings. <clears throat> so anyway, I'm walking across the campus with Dick Crum. He was the head coach of Miami. And yes. uh, he was he was the the coach of that Metter team that that uh, beat Maslin in the opener, and I said to him, uh, "Boy, I, we, we, I'm reminiscing about that '68 team he had that wound up ranked uh, number one in our ratings and wound up number two in the state." And he said, "Yeah, that was a hell of a team." He said, "Yeah, but you know, my 1966 team was better." What? My God. That was the 66 team that we had 10th. I said, they, it's the, that, that, I said his system doesn't work if he had met her number one. Well, oh, my God. So anyway, um, so, okay, I put, the, um, I put the charity game out of business, but I redeemed myself by helping promote the uh, Harvins rating system. So <laughs> anyway, um, That's awesome. Yeah, oh, sauce covered them. Oh uh, yeah, the, the high school every the um, every Labor Day, I had a ritual. I would getting ready for the football season. I would change the ribbon in my portable typewriter because back then I was every Friday night. I would cover the best high school game, and um, on Saturday I would cover an, uh, a major college football game, Miami OU or or um, Notre Dame, Michigan State, Notre Dame, USC, um, 
uh, Michigan, Michigan State. I would cover a big college game every Saturday. And then on Sunday, I would cover the Browns wherever they were, home or away. It was great. And uh, what, where am I going with this? I forget now. But, oh, the, the cover, I saw so many great college games. 1966, Notre Dame and Michigan State tied 10-10, and that determined the national champions of 1966. Mm-hmm. Um, they wound up giving the nod to uh, Notre Dame and over Michigan State when, when um, no, they were both in the regular season uh, nine and one, and uh, I mean not nine and zero, oh, but just with the tie. And then of course uh, they declared Notre Dame the national champion. That was in what the first week in uh, December. But Michigan State uh, made it look good because they went out to the Rose Bowl and they got beat by Southern Cal. <coughs> so. That was a hell of a game. Do you know who sat next to me in the press box for that 1966 <laughs> Notre Dame-Michigan State game? Jimmy Breslin. No. <laughs> yes. And he, he went down wow. to, to watch some of the first half from on the field. And he came back up, and he's raving about the hitting, the soul, the hitting, the smacking down there. <laughs> anyway. And then I was there. So many of the, the best college games I covered back in that era were Notre Dame games. One 1973, I was there in New Orleans. Um, Notre Dame against Alabama, one against number oh, two yes. in the national championship. And uh, Notre Dame won it with us. Tom Clemens late in the game, well, with a couple minutes to go, passes out of his end zone for a third and long first down and uh, to, to uh, preserve like a, what was the score, 23 to 21 or something over Alabama. And if they, if Notre Dame had to punt from their end zone, why uh, Alabama would have gotten the ball at midfield, and in a couple of plays they would have been able to try a game-winning field goal. Anyway, um, then there was the 1977 Notre Dame-Texas game at the Cotton Bowl, and uh, that was where that was Joe Montana and all Joe boys Montana. About and um, who was that? That great uh, the. Um, the, the running back for Texas from Tyler, Texas. Um, oh, one of the all-time greats, Hall of Famer. But anyway, Earl Campbell. Earl Campbell. <laughs> Earl Campbell. Yes. yes. And now there were others of that ilk. Bob Golick was a, a linebacker for uh, uh, Notre Dame. And anyway, we had a Notre Dame had a left guard from Cathedral Latin named Ted Horansky. And Notre Dame, by the way beat the hell out of Texas to win the national championship. And they, they put five touchdowns on the board against Texas. All of them were plays behind the left side of the Notre Dame line, and Ted Horansky was right in the middle, clearing the way. So anyway, I'm up in the press box, and I start to, about the second time Notre Dame scored uh, uh, behind uh, Ted Horansky's block, and I'm saying real loud in the press box, wow. Ted Horansky had a hell of a block on that play. And then as it goes on, after five touchdowns, I'm getting louder and more obnoxious <laughs> with every touchdown behind Ted Horansky. Ted Horansky, what a block. Anyway, he winds up, well, he winds up fifth in the most valuable player voting in the game. But considering that there was the um, Earl Campbell, Joe Montana, uh, Notre Dame had two great running backs there. I forget their names right now. But, and Bob Golick, a linebacker. And, there, and he, later on, Ted, Ted's son uh, went to St. Ed's and played uh, just a few years ago. Ted, uh, 
Ted moved out here to North Homestead, and um, and I, I, my son sees him all the time at the um, Fairview Rec Center. They're lifting weights and things. Ted is t- still tries to keep himself in shape. But anyway, Ted told me one time, he said, you know, after the game, this guy came up and introduced me to him in the locker room. He said that he introduced me to some guy from the New York Times. And he said, uh, Ted, I just want to tell you that I voted for you for MVP of the game. Now, Chris, you know, that those of us up in the press box, we don't know what you guys are doing in the line, the guards and the ta- who knows. But, but, yeah, right. but, but he's hearing this guy say, what a block by Ted Horansky. And they're thinking that this, there's a guy up here who must know. <laughs> oh, so I almost got a photo of MVP of job. the Bowl game. <laughs> oh, the ultimate sales but, job. You know, I love Chris, it. <laughs> maybe he might have deserved it anyway. He probably did. But what did I know? <laughs> Oh, oh, boy, those, oh, oh those were glorious days, Chris. Okay. Then, uh, that is. So oh, um, covered, we covered softball. Back, I started the – well, uh, Chuck Webster, at, uh, um, maybe you remember Chuck Webster from the Plain Dealer back in those days. He did the, the high school beat, too, and we did softball. We, anyway, we, we fell in love with slow pitch softball because it was a great summer event. And it usually began and ended in bars. So anyway, <laughs> there's a lot to like about sloping softball here. So, so we started covering it as a major beat, and um, there there were some some uh, great players, the Lawyer Brothers, Preston Powell. I spoke at Preston's funeral just a few months ago. He had been a oh. uh, fullback with the Browns for two or three years out of Grambling, but he stayed here in Cleveland. And he wound up playing slow pitch softball, and he was a great slugger and a great guy. But anyway, we started. We started covering the. We picked and uh, started in like 1964, or 65. We picked an all city team, and uh, that was a, a breakthrough. So, so we we decided to attach the um, the Plain Dealer name to the best softball slow pitch softball league in the city of Cleveland at Morgana Park. So we called the Cleveland Major the PD Major. We cover two or we carry two or three paragraphs uh, every other day on the the games at at Morgana Park, and then they were also getting those big tournament uh, games at uh, at Parma. So we started we adopted the Parma Major as well, and we would write we 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 covered it for hell. We must have covered it as a major beat for about ten years, and everybody you'd walk into a bar. And there would always be a dozen guys sitting at the bar with their softball shirts on. It would be, every bar was sponsoring a softball team. We covered that as a major beat, and there, there were great wow. times doing that. So, um, were you then? Uh, but anyway, and um, of course, I would always be sick all winter back in the in the '60s and into the '70s because I would cover those. Um, high school basketball games in those jam-packed gyms. Remember when uh, the, uh, your high school days, the, the basketball games in the St. Ed's gym, there'd be about 1,500 kids in there crammed mm-hmm. in there, and one, one yes. kid 
would get a cold, and in three days, 1,500 other kids got the same cold, and that was me. Every Friday and Saturday night, I'm in those jam-packed gyms, breathing in all those germs. <laughs> and, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, oh, but, we, but we loved it. <laughs> obviously, and by, and by, obviously. And, and by now I, we had a, a boxing promoter. He came in from out of town. This would have been uh, 19... He started about 1968. Came in and started promoting boxing at the arena because we had a, an old um, boxing promoter, Larry. Uh, Larry, oh my God, why do I, why do I forget his name now? But he retired, and so nobody was putting on pro boxing at the arena, and so Don Elbaum comes in from Erie, PA, and um, he is a friend of mine. To this day, he still he's in area back in area. He later went up, became a big time promoter in um, in Atlantic City, and um, he went into the um, boxing Hall of Fame up in Canastota, New York, a couple of year oh, ago, wow. not this yes. past summer, but the year before. He went in to mm-hmm. their Hall of Fame. <clears throat> I loved him. Great guy, Don Elbaum. He's um he's now by about he's about eighty five, and. Uh, <clears throat> um, so I became the boxing writer. So a fellow named Jim Doyle had covered boxing for us, but Jim was a, a classic. But uh, he was also, also retired, and, and so the, the, that's why I wound up covering the, the, um, all, the, all the Ellie Frazier fights and all those big-time fights. But uh, we, uh, we, it was great at the Cleveland Arena, too. He would put on a show about every other month, and uh, that's where he brought in Doyle Baird. He discovered Doyle Baird on an amateur show in Akron and to turned him into a number 10-ranked middleweight contender in the world. And uh, he was doing well until they finally, um, it, he had, you know, he was in there because he had to make money. And so he had to put him in against some, against some pretty mean people. Um, who was the... Uh, Oh, the the great uh, welterweight and middleweight champion back in the um, early seventies. Uh, um, didn't he kill? He he, he uh, killed Benny Kid Perrette in nineteen sixty sixty two in the ring. Uh, who was it? Um, you know, guy from uh, a Cuba. I think he was a Cuban. Um, uh, 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 yes. You know, you he was a great, uh, he was a great one. Um, but anyway, he, uh, he, so he put some Doyle Baird is, was a, a good middleweight, but sometimes he had to uh, move him up to fight, uh, like, um, light heavyweight champions. And he, and, uh, Doyle took some of those bad beatings, but, um, here he is, um, Fighting this this well, middleweight champion at the Cleveland Arena, and uh, he uh, hung in. Was for it Emil all... Griffith? Emil Griffith. Emil Griffith. How yes. did I forget the name? Yes. yes. Um, and uh, boy, Doyle somehow hung in there for all ten rounds, and so after the fight, and he he became a, a great friend of mine. He's still alive in Akron, and. Uh, He's, I interview him on the, he's laying there on the trainer's table after the fight, and he's in bad shape. And he said, he hit me with a body shot 
in the third round. He said, the hardest I've ever been hit in my life. And he's talking in a whisper because he... And he, because that was all the all all the strength he could muster was to whisper, and he said, "I never recovered from that." And now, just imagine, he takes your breath away with a shot to the body so bad that you can't get your breath for the next seven rounds. But he hung in there. Doyle was he was so courageous. And anyway, there were some. Then there were. <laughs> Remember that we had, no, you don't remember, but uh, some of your older listeners might remember, a pitcher named Dean Chance won the American League Cy Young uh, in uh, 1964 or so. <coughs> Came out of, he was a farm boy from Worcester, Ohio. So he winds up running into some, um, some boxing people in, when he's pitching for the Angels. And, and so he gets involved in boxing. And so he, and, uh, so now I'm the boxing writer, so now I'm hearing from Dean Chance, middle of the night, 2 o'clock in the morning, he would call me from L.A. to tell me about this, this fighter that he's just signed that he's handling. So, okay, um, so he gets this, um, a good-looking, light. this is early 70s. He, he and Don Elbaum did not get along at the time. And so he had this, uh, Dean Chance, had this stylish, light heavyweight named Ray Anderson. I think Ray might still be alive in Akron. But anyway, so uh, he puts, and, and uh, Don Elbaum uh, uh, had been grooming this heavyweight out of Youngstown named Ted Gullick. Boy, he was, could he hit. And uh, so they put him together. Uh, Gullick's dead now. He got, um, he, he was, uh, he was uh, wound up on the streets. Anyway, oh wow! They there they they go at the Cleveland Arena. Gets it. They, both fighters had been built up, and Don was a master at this building up guys to, for a big fight. And uh, I mean, local guys builds them up, gets them a reputation. And so here it is: um, Doyle, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Ted Gullick, and Ray Anderson. And boy, Ray was a cool fighter, and he he must have won the first eight rounds of this ten rounder. And he was given Ted Gullick a boxing lesson, but in the late in the ninth round, and I mean Ted must have been lost, must have lost all eight rounds, and um, but in the, near the end of the round nine, Ted finally catches Ray and drops him. Ray Anderson did not recover from that. It was a punch that I forget whether it was a right or a left, but he got he dropped him. Ray never recovered. They gave, he managed to survive the round. He comes out for the tenth, and Gullick destroyed him in the tenth round, and win, knocks him, wow. stops him, and Gullick wins the fight. And this was it, it was as for Elbaum felt as though he'd been in there winning the fight himself, because the anyway. <laughs> um, funny thing, Dean Chance. Heck of a pitcher, but he wound mm -hmm. up having no friends. He cheated at cards, and uh, <laughs> he was so years years later. He's out of baseball, and he's back running the family farm in Worcester, and he wants to join the Worcester Elks Club so that he could get in in there, play cards there. 
and um, he cheated all the time. Though, so they had um, he had to go up for a membership, a vote of the membership, to allow Dean Chance to join the Elks Club. Now this would be, you know, a formality. Yep, uh, everybody comes up and drops a, a ball in this thing, and <laughs> yeah, you're a member. Well, they they've got a black ball and a red ball, and uh, the, the the guys are out standing in line waiting to drop their ball in the preview Dean Chance. This was quite unlike a membership application, <coughs> unlike they'd ever had at this house club in Worcester. <laughs> so about the third guy in line, to he says, "Hey." Where'd all the red balls go? No, I mean the black balls. Where'd all the black balls go? And so he, he they, they were already out of black. He got blackballed. The first three guys who voted blackballed him. And so they ran out of black balls. <laughs> oh, Dean Chance. He was a classic. Uh, you know, so many of these characters that I've, these, that I've just mentioned, how long have we gone? Probably too long. I'm sorry I've gone. Nonstop. No, you're you're fine. You're fine. We have, we have a few more minutes actually. About ten my, more my minutes. My wife has just fine. handed me a glass of water. She hears me <laughs> hacking in the background. I guess. Stay with me here while I take a sip of water. I will. You're fine. Ah, okay. Yeah. And they, she just says, "How long are you going to go?" Maybe she wants to make a phone call. I don't know. <laughs> so anyway. Um, where, uh, where, where, where was I when I interrupted myself? Um, I, we, we were De- Dean Chance. Dean Chance, yes. Blackball Dean Chance, yeah. Okay, so we're, mm-hmm. we're going to move on from there. He's dead now. He wound, no, <laughs> This guy, he wound up working carnivals. He would have those things with you, you know, the Cupid dolls and whatever, you know, and you knock down three of them with, uh, and you get a, you know, a 55-cent toy. Anyway, he would mm-hmm. travel the uh, the state fair circuits. Back, that's what he did later on until he died. He would run the farm in the summer, and some, but he would also break away to do work the uh, the county fair circuit. Yeah, the county wow. fairs and state fair circuits. Yes, mm-hmm. and with those silly game shows where they, you know, he'd um, you had to knock down three of these Cupid dolls or whatever they were. You didn't know the two of them were, had lead bottoms, and you couldn't knock them over. <coughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, that was. Although, uh, yeah, oh, I know, yeah. Also, so many of these things, I covered, I wrote about in my books. I would, I really kicked myself that for the last eight months, I should have knocked out an, an, another, another book. I was, I've got a material here for for a fifth book. But I didn't write a word. I'm kicking myself because for some reason, we're during this COVID thing, I didn't have the energy to write. But oh, wow. um, uh, all of those, like, like I had a chapter on Dean Chance and Bo Belinsky, uh, since I just mentioned him. And all, we, uh, mm-hmm. these, all of the experiences with the Indians and the, <coughs> and, um, and the Browns, great times, great times. Junior O'Malley at the racetrack, oh, so great times. There was, um, oh, I've, one of my favorite people, Stella Walsh, for example. 
you don't remember Stella Walsh. She was big no. back in Cleveland, back in the um, the 1930s. She was the there there were in the the first half of this of the um, 20th century. There were two great women athletes. Babe Didrikson Zaharias was a great mm-hmm. golfer, and Stella Walsh. She was a great track star, and uh, she won gold. Um, won uh, all the gold medals in the sprints in the the uh, women's olympics in 1932 uh 36 she was our stella walsh from cleveland and anyway later on uh, it was uh, well there were all sorts of rumors about her you know she was just so strong and built like an nfl linebacker tremendous muscles or calf muscles were were looked like a, a running back's calf muscles, and um, she would. Uh, she became a buddy of mine because she would. I'm young reporter there, 1964, 65, and she would come in. By the by, this time she was out of track, but she was still coaching. Coach, she would always coach girls' teams, girls' softball teams, and basketball teams, and girls' track teams, and she would uh, here in Cleveland. And uh, she would come into the Plain Dealer Sports Department with little scraps of paper that they, they would, would be holding a big uh, track meet, a uh, Polish track meet. Stella Walsh, she was Polish. Uh, Walsh was a shortening uh, version of her po- long Polish name. So she would l- look for vague for just to get a couple paragraphs in the Plain Dealer about the, uh, you know, her Polish track stars and uh, what and whatever. Um, and the, the crusty old desk men at the plane dealer, they paid her no attention. They, because, of, you know, there, there were rumors about was she really a woman and she might have been half man because she, was, she had a build that you just don't see in women. The, you know, narrow hips and, and small chest, and, but massive mm-hmm. shoulders and muscles, muscles upon muscles. So, but I was nice to her. Another sip of water there. Anyway, that's okay. Um, so I would take care of her, and I'd get a couple paragraphs in for. Her. She wasn't asking for much. So anyway, I would became her go-to guy, and so then nothing would do but I would run into her at AAU banquets and things like that, and she would always have to come up and give me a big hug and a kiss. Oh my God! So, <laughs> anyway, and she had wild hair, and so she she must have been losing her hair because. She would wear this wild wig, <coughs> and so, but she was my buddy, and um, and I was always respectful to her, be, um, and she was grateful for that. So anyway, 1980, many years later, she shot and killed. She was going into a, an Uncle Bill's on Broadway in Old Slavic Village, and that's mm-hmm. where she she always stayed close to home, Slavic Village, and. Um, she lived on Clement Avenue, just south of Harvard. Anyway, uh, she was getting red ribbons for, for there would be a banquet Saturday night because the Polish national basketball team was touring, and they were going to play a game against uh, uh, here in Cleveland. And so for, she was getting red ribbons for the banquet that Saturday night. She... Uh, she gets out of her car, walks to the entrance of Uncle Bill's, and two kids had just robbed the place, and they came running out with guns blazing, and they shot, just, just, just 
shot her by Sandra Stella, shot her in the chest, and she died. And oh. because they take her to the morgue, and because she was a, um, a victim of a killing, they do, uh, Lester Adelson does a big autopsy on her, and they discovered her secret, that all those rumors had been true. They discovered that she had both sex organs. Up there, tucked in there, was a little penis. And so she had the male genes. She says, had the male genes. My God. And the Cleveland Press, anyway, somebody in the um, coroner's um, office leaked the story leaked this story. And this was several days after her funeral and all of that, the, that this came out. And the, so the Cleveland Press had a <coughs> wonderful uh, um, headline, Stella was a fellow. And, oh, oh my God. <coughs> so anyway, she was my buddy, Stella. She used to hug me and kiss me. <laughs> oh, yeah, I wrote about her. I remember writing my first story about her. Oh, yeah. Um, I had, she was always pestering me about she wanted to, what would, would really bond our friendship if I would race her a hundred yard dash. She was now, (laughs) she was now like 50 or so and I was 27. And so finally I saw her nagging, nagging, nagging. Finally I caved in. And uh, I raced her at, we did it at um, the Cuyahoga Heights field, track the track, because that's where she trained. That's at the end of East 71st Street, not far from her neighborhood. And that's where Mm -hmm. she would train her girls. And so the morning in that summer of 1967, I guess, uh, we're going to, we are going to race. Okay. So I get out there with my Madras Bermuda shorts. Sneakers with a broken shoestring in one, which I tied halfway up, and and uh, pull up, get out of my car, take the last drag on a pell-mell, grind it into the track at the Cuyahoga Heights track, and we go out, and we are now going to race. She had her tra- girls' track team there, her whole track team. Let me see. Well, she had one with a starting pistol, two others holding the, uh, the tape at the finish line, two others with... Uh, 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 so stopwatches and uh, and then another, another one was driving the starting blocks into the uh, into the ground on the tra- the cinder track and so wow. she says I'm going to give you a 10 yard head start and I thought that that was fair hell Eva she was 30 years older than me but um, but she was an Olympic champion for Pete's sake. I deserved something, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I held her up, Chris. I held her off by half a step, and so I'm feeling pretty good with myself. Dick Conway, our photographer, was there to actually take a picture of this because I would write a little story on on how it was to race against an Olympic champion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm ready to leave. I I'm about to light up another pell-mell. And she says, congratulations, <laughs> you've qualified for the finals. What? Listen, I've just run a hard 90 yards. And she says, this time we'll race even. Now she's going to, I now have to run another 100 yards full out. And uh, 
So, you know, you, you got to give me a little break between races, huh? No, nope, we go right now. So, off we go. The gun, they start, you know, reload the starting gun. Off we go. And the, she's kicking cinders into my face all the way down the track. <laughs> and afterwards, so, okay, I concede she beat me. I'm about to light up another pell-mell. And she, she says, now we have to go to Stan Orzek's bar. That's off 71st and uh, uh, somewhere in the Slavic village. Stan Orzek, among other things, Stan was a high school basketball and football referee who owned this bar. And all the coaches would go there on Friday nights after their games. And so Stella liked to go there for lunch. And anyway, so we had to go to Stan Orzek's bar where I threw $20 on the bar and she drank it up. And that's, uh, <laughs> so anyway, I did a story on that, and uh, so anyway, all of that that became the Stella Walsh chapter in my first book, and that's uh, there was, uh, this wound up. The, I didn't realize at the time when when I was covering all this stuff that some of these people were some of the greatest characters in the world. Um, uh, I, I mentioned. Um, um, Jack Harbin, what a character he was. In addition to being a cash register repairman, I forgot to mention that he was also a racetrack handicapper. And we can thank a, a racetrack handicapper for inventing the point system for high school football. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I should have just that was that was I guess the money the money line in that. Anyway, um, Bob Gain, I got I knew we're, I don't know we're probably going to run out of time. Let me another sip of water here. Stay with me. You're fine. You are totally fine. Anyway, I got to tell you about a guy that I really liked, Bob Gain. I want—I'm not going to even get into the Doug Deacon stories, but Bob Gain was a—he was a great defensive end of the Cleveland Browns, who should have gone to the Hall of Fame. Uh, in fact, I lobbied to get him in the Hall of Fame. Never got him in there. Um, he was in 1955, for example. He was the the L.A. Times named him, in a big banquet, the uh, NFL Defensive Player of the Year. He was great. So anyway, he played uh, 19, early in the 64 season. He gets his leg broken in a game against the, the expansion Dallas Cowboys, and that ended his career. <clears throat> but he stayed here, and he was a, 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 what a big personality he had. And he became a salesman here, and and he did well, lived in Timberlake, the east side suburb, little, little near, near the lake, but not on the lake. And um, uh, he was a bit of a drinker. It turned out so was his wife, Kitty. Um, so one, just oh, early 90s, 93 or so, Bob went out one morning, just three or four days before Christmas, went out to run some errands in the morning. And he gets back home about 10 o'clock at night with a glorious snootful. And this wasn't unusual for Bob, but for some reason this was getting close to the holiday, about close to Christmas, and Kitty was sitting there all day and night alone. And she also was nipping into the healing waters. And so <laughs> Bob gets in with a snootful, and she's waiting for him with an even bigger snootful. And she's given him a ration and uh, 
Bob finally says, oh, why don't you just shoot me? Oh, Bob never should have said it. Because for some reason, this big six foot five, 250-pound defensive end, which was big back in his day, mm-hmm. uh, he kept for some reason a, um, a big old 45 in the nightstand next to his bed. And so she went and got it, walked no. up, put it right up against his test, and he says, sure, go, so go shoot me. She did. This oh. bullet rattled around inside his chest, bounced off his sternum and every other bone in his chest. And so he's, it, it did not go through him, however. It just bounced around in there, and finally it came to a stop. He slumps down into a chair, and he, uh, he survived, of course, because... Uh, Obviously, he's telling me about some of this stuff later. Mm-hmm. He uh, slumps down into a chair, and he says, Call 911. Another guy, you know, like Ali, a guy who can oh, is only talking in a whisper by now. CJ, some of my people wound up in such bad shape that they could only whisper. Anyway, so he whispers, Call 911. So the phone was hanging on the wall in the kitchen. So she goes in. And Bob hears nothing, nothing. And he said in a classic line later, he said, I didn't know if she was going to make that call or if she was reloading. (laughs) Anyway, he spent three months in Metro General Hospital, and he pulled through. She, in the meantime, She's been charged with attempted murder. In fact, if he died, she would have gone up for murder. Yes. And so now, Bob is concerned that Timberlake is in Lake County, and so she's got her trial there, and uh, Bob is now concerned because he's had a bunch of us write letters to the judge about what a sweet woman she was. And... um, he, and he had a, a very good argument to the, to the judge. He said, if she goes to jail, who's going to take care of me? I've been shot, you know. And so he... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, he pulled through, and what they did, they took the bullet out of him. And then someone took that bullet, drilled a hole in it, and hung it on his keychain as a reminder Whenever he goes out, come right home. And by the way, <laughs> they both quit drinking oh. after that, and they were like lovebirds for the rest of their life. They lived another, that happened in about, as I say, about 93 or so. And um, uh, let me see, Bob died about three years ago, and Kitty died two years ago. And they okay. were like lovebirds till the end when they quit drinking. Wow, that's uh, oh, there were the, so the, the stories, and I didn't realize until then. I write these stories, and the I wind up writing four books with all of these stories. And I, at the time, I was living these stories. I didn't realize um, that how unusual this was. There was a night at the theatrical <laughs> grill, for example. Um, I'm sitting there. Oh, uh, the the night before, Notre Dame played Navy here at the stadium in uh, 1977, I think. And, um, and uh, they, Navy 
shopped around uh, they for, for a lot of their games. They would take and play them at neutral site, big cities, Baltimore, Cleveland, uh, New York. And so a few year, for, a few, for several years, times over the years, Notre Dame played Navy here in Cleveland. <coughs> and so the, before the, the Thursday night before the game uh, in 1977, I take my two friends of mine, the Notre Dame Sports Information Director and the uh, Navy Sports Information Director, who had been an old classmate of mine, and uh, I take him to dinner at the theatrical, and we're sitting there at the that's on Short Vincent Street, nice one of the nicest restaurants in Cleveland, and uh, I'm looking over there to the left, and there is the agent Ed Keating, and he was sitting there with Ted Turner, who had just bought the Atlanta Braves, and uh, Ed Keating is doing a contract. One of his outfielders doing the contract, and they're now having dinner. At the, the, the big Ed was a big time agent, headquartered here in Cleveland, and um, so Ed spots me over there, and we, we, he and Ted Turner finished their business. I think they had pretty much wound up there and uh, finalizing the contract over dinner, and then so Ed comes over with um, with Ted Turner, and uh, I introduce them around, and they sit down with us. Now, Ted Turner did not have this big reputation yet. Um, but anyway, that, so then who, who wanders by but uh, Don King and the boxing promoter. Oh, oh I'm yes. telling you, yeah, Don King. <laughs> so he plops down with us. <clears throat> and then who along, there's Nick Maletti, who had, was still uh, on the, the Cavs at that time. And uh, he plops down with us. And uh, Ted Turner is regaling us with stories of his, when he, when he, when he's introduced to Tom Bates, sports information director of the Naval Academy, he starts regaling Tom Bates with stories of his sailing prowess and how he sails on um, uh, Annapolis Bay all the time. And at one point, Tom Bates leans over to me and he says, who is this bullshit artist? He says, <laughs> nobody sails on Annapolis Bay, but uh, uh, unless you're... you're you know, you're connected with the Naval Academy, and uh, Ted Turner did not go to, had no, no connection with the Naval Academy at the time. But he say, but it turns out, the next year, Ted Turner wins the America's Cup. Oh, America's God, Cup, yes. <laughs> that, it was no bullshit. He was great. Anyway, but Tom Bates, um, the, 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 but he to, to get away from Ted Turner. He leans over and he starts talking to uh, Don King. <laughs> now, Don King oh, has been hot-breathing Roger Valdeseri because Don King had this thing. He wanted to hold this heavyweight boxing tournament. And he, now, Don, Don King didn't know anything about college football, but he sees Notre Dame, the, the fighting of something rings a bell in his Notre Dame fighting Irish. This would be a place to hold his boxing tournament. <laughs> so he starts hot-breathing Roger Valdeseri. And Roger Valdeseri <coughs> also feels the same about Don King as Tom Bates feels about <laughs> the about uh, Turner. He would get me away from this guy. <laughs> so, anyway, Don King latches on to Tom Bates, and that's why eventually, like the next year, they have this heavyweight boxing tournament 
on the flight deck of an aircraft carrier at Newport News or Norfolk or one of those places. And it was a scandal because Don King naturally, uh, if, he, if it was 56 uh, of one and half a dozen of the other to do things illegally or illegally, well, he would do it <laughs> illegally just because that's his instinct. <laughs> so <clears throat> what he did, he paid off the boxing writer for um, uh, Sports Illustrated and, he, and, he, and the Ring magazine, and he got them to alter some records in Ring magazine for him to legitimize the, some of these heavyweights, Scott Ledoux and somebody else. Anyway, wow. and, he, and he gets, uh, and he puts this on, on the flight, on, it's on Saturday afternoon, wide world of sports. Not all the, the say, you know, he had picked out the, you know, the, the, um, the top 16 or the top eight heavyweights for the, this, this tournament. And, uh, each one wasn't the, uh, not on all on one day. It took hell a couple of months to get all run all these fights. <clears throat> so this one on the flight deck of the aircraft carrier. This judging was so bad. One of the, there was a woman Scott Ledoux and somebody else, I forget who he beat, but they didn't give it to him. They gave it to the other guy. Gave him all ten rounds. And <laughs> this woman there was this one woman judge, a woman judge, and. She was asked afterward how she about this. This decision was so bad. They announced the decision. Scott Ledoux is stomping around the ring, stomping. Howard Cosell at ringside gets up there with a microphone to ask him what the, he thinks of this. With the, how they just robbed him, <laughs> and Scott Ledoux knocks off Howard's toupee. <laughs> that goes flying. <laughs> So, anyway, um, afterward, the woman referee said, well, it is true that this other guy, that, that Scott landed about 100 punches, and the other guy only landed two punches, but his punches really were effective. What the hell? Oh, so this led to a massive investigation. Sports Illustrated fired the, um, their boxing writer. Pat, was it Pat Putnam? I forget who. But anyway, um, he gets fired, and uh, ABC is humiliated, Wide World of Sports. They were mm -hmm. wind up complicit in the whole thing just to, to get good programming. And uh, Three Magazine, uh, uh, Fle Nat Fleischer, was he still alive then? I don't know. But uh, the sports but uh, the Ring Magazine was and Ring Magazine and their record book, they were humiliated. Um, and that, that ended the tournament right there, a federal investigation on Don Jeez. King's boxing tournament. And my boys were right in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, I love it. <clears throat> oh, but, hey, now listen, on your website, there you are. There's a picture of you, and you're holding up a copy of my book. What is this? What, what book do you have up there? I wrote four of them, you know. Yes, yes. That was just one more story, I believe. Uh, no, oh, just, let's have another. It's Let's Have oh. Another. Oh, okay. Was that it's sort of a greenish cover? 2015. Yeah. Well, yes. I, listen, I'm really yes. grateful for the plug. Thank you very much. Oh, no problem. You, you, like I said, 
you you are you know first of all you are a sports historian, you are a Saint Ed's historian, you are revered by many. So when we talk sports in Cleveland, your name always comes up, always. By, by the way, and, we haven't really <clears throat> talked about those some of those um, Saint Ed football games like um, the we, we came so close to winning three state championships before we won one. The first one was um, 1975, wasn't it? When he had mm-hmm. we had that great team with Joe Portale and Joe Dan Hugh and and uh, we we lose to Cincinnati Moeller 14 to 12 in the Rubber Bowl. 75, I th- uh, no 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 yeah um, yeah 75. Yeah, that was 75. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. and um, what on a frigid night at the Rubber Bowl we were going in for a winning touchdown. It's under two minutes to go, maybe about a minute, and we're inside the ten, and and you couldn't stop poor Joe Portelli then, not not in that situation, and um, by like with you know players are worn down by then, and Portelli was uh, we fumbled, I forget I think oh. the exchange between McHugh and Portelli got fumbled, mishandled, and uh, mm-hmm. a Moeller linebacker who later played in the pros winds up recovering it. And they beat us fourteen to twelve, and um, wow, yeah. And I remember Mike Current saying that, yeah, he Moeller um, scored first and took a seven to nothing lead. <clears throat> and so when we scored, Mike Currents said his plan was, well, he we were going to go for two, and put uh, Moeller on the defensive right off the bat. We don't get the two point conversion, so we're losing seven to six. So now we are chasing them all the time. We lose. We make a. We don't get the two-point conversion on a second touchdown. So, but anyway, we were. I think that we might have even been ranked first in the state because Moeller didn't mm-hmm. have a reputation yet. Neither one of us did. And um, so wow. then next comes uh, your year, eighty. Wasn't it your? year? The next one was uh, your year. Yeah, the next one was your 87. year. Eighty-seven. 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 And uh, yes, what did you get? You gained over a hundred yards in that state championship game, right? Yes. Under, over 100. Yes. But you were, yes. in your first, the first two games, you were rushing for 300, almost 400. You were, boy, mm-hmm. my God, boy. You beat Berea and Mid Park. That school system, they had a rough tournament that year. They, both of them, they, the first, <laughs> they, you guys put about 40 points on, on each of them. <laughs> yes. And then, uh, and then uh, because you sprain your ankle, we lose the second game. Uh, Twenty-one to twenty. Yes. And uh, yes. boy, that that was a heartbreak. That was I think think was that game a Sunday afternoon in Columbus. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. yes, it was. And um, it was you. And then twenty thousand. Pardon. Twenty thousand fans. It was a nice turnout. Oh, were there twenty thousand there? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And that was yeah. to uh, that public school. From Fairfield, Fairfield, was it? Cincinnati Fairfield, Fairfield yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then we lose to, uh, I think it was Elder, that we lost in um, 90-something. Um, no, no, 2000, uh, I don't know, 2005 or so. We lose mm-hmm. to, uh, we, we got spanked pretty good by Elder. But uh, we, we should have won the first two. Yes. So, and then we but, would have then we would have six by well, now. 
Yes, we would. But we're celebrating the 10th year anniversary of St. Ed's first championship. Yes. yes. So, yes. and you had the opportunity to write an incredible piece, and you tied together the history that we just talked about from the past, as well as that incredible team from 2010, our first state championship team. Yes. So, what was it like, you know, putting that article together and reliving that that win? It was fun. It really was because it it meant so much to all St. Ed's guys and and uh, me as much as uh, uh, as anybody who uh, yeah it meant a lot to me because I remember Bobby Bobby Andrews oh Bobby he's dead now and uh, mm-hmm. you know his son Danny was it was yes. Dan, did Danny follow you or or were you were you who was oh who was the first I followed you or Danny. Danny I followed, followed Danny. Danny yes. Yes. Well, St. Ed's was putting out great tailbacks in those days under with Al O'Neill. Loved giving the ball to mm-hmm. the tailback 35 times a game, and don't <laughs> put the ball in the air. <laughs> Not at all. Oh, boy. Oh, uh, We just lined but anyway, up and um, was macho. But, but uh, Al was, was lucky to get to you tailbacks like you. Chris Mobley and a few others, one after another. They never. We were, in fact, for about three years in a row, the Fox 8 Player of the Year was a St. Ed tailback. Yes. <laughs> so, um, but oh, those uh, the back when I can remember all your games that year, and, and uh, the band we had a hell. That must have been 200 kids in the band back in those days, and boy, could they make a sound! And they would always mm-hmm. play after every touchdown. They would play Wipeout. Do you remember that? I do remember that. People must have wondered, is is that the St. Ed's alma mater? And they'd be blasting out, wipe out, wipe out. (laughs) Oh, Oh, boy. I love it. I love it. Oh. I love it. Yeah, that's okay. And that was, it was, it was that first state championship in 2010 was a classic night, very cold. Guys were, but the, their their feet were cold. But by, but suddenly you didn't feel cold in the final couple of minutes, when it looks like we are going to win this thing, and uh, there were it was nip and tuck for a while, um, and the food. But with a, oh I don't know, last five minutes of the game, it was what a scene. It started to snow, and it was. So many times the state championship game ended in snow, and um, and it was what a and now the faux snow is starting to stick to the field, and uh, oh. now the footprints of the guys as the are, are you can see the footprints in the snow as the you know they're racing around on the on the field and fi- and they and. Um, we were going up against that hell of a quarterback who wound up playing at Ohio State. Um, and we we shut him down. Oh my God, what a game that was! And uh, Jerry McKenna, Braxton Miller, yes, yeah, yes, um, Jerry McKenna, who does all those uh, sculptures, uh, statues at Notre Dame of all the coaches, and he's a world-renowned sculptor. He he played on our 1955 team. He was a, a backup guard. <clears throat> anyway, he flew up from San Antonio, where his studio is, and of course he he had forgotten how cold it can get in the snow up here and his feet were freezing he said and uh but he but uh, jerry i think i quoted him in that article saying that but by the end he didn't feel cold at all 
Um, yeah. But anyway, he went, um, and he was so excited. He came up from San Antonio for this. It meant so much to him, and he he did, uh, you know, he did the uh, the crucifix that's in the Saint Ed's Chapel. He did that and donated it to the school. Uh, yeah. But anyway, um, he went down back to the. We got home, and uh, yeah, I was ready to come home, and uh, I was elated, of course, and excited. But I was still cold and ready to go to bed. And Jerry, <laughs> however, we come back home, and he jumped right in my car, went right down to the school, and waited for the team to get back. Um, to the and so he waited. They had the reception in the cafeteria for these guys. And, the, you know, the parents were there and everybody waiting for them, and Jerry was there. And Jerry is not quite as tall as I am. And he was looking up at those guys, and he marveled at, you know, finally standing up this close to these high school kids today. He said he really felt like a dwarf looking up at them and how the, time, the times have changed in high school football, of course. Now, they, you know, mm-hmm. now we play a... To win a state championship, you play 15 games now, and the OHSAA is now, you know, wide open to new ideas, and um, it's it's getting modern, and uh, that that's been happening though for hell since the the first tournament, the first play playoff was like 73 or something. Um, so we're 73. We're coming up on we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the playoffs here in Ohio. Wow. Yeah, that's going to be in about three years. Wow. I think it's going to be 70, I think it's going to be 50 years. Wow. Jeez. Yeah, some kids, um, there are, oh boy, some people, uh, most of the kids today have no idea that we once had a high school football season that ended after 10 games, no playoffs, and that the, mm. and that it was the, uh, the, the press agents who won the state championships. In fact, when, the first Cleveland team to win a state championship um, in the the old days of voting the wire services, Benedictine, 1957. They finally are voted the state champion. That's because they they were back in for about 20 years. Benedictine always played, went down at Maslin, um, about the second game of the season, and they would you know always lose. They'd get homered and everything that would happen down there. <clears throat> and uh, but in but they really had a good team in 1957. And Ed Shea, who was my predecessor on the high school beat at the Plain Dealer, Ed okay. did the the voting for the in the AP poll for the Cleveland area, and uh, he realized that you know all these small town teams, they everybody who well no, wait a minute no anybody. Any AP user, anybody who had an AP machine in their newsroom could vote in the AP poll. Every little radio station had an AP machine. They were all members of the AP. Every little small-town newspaper had an, was an AP member. And um, so they would, they, like Maslin, Ken McKinley, they would have all those little radio stations, plus their little neighborhood newspapers all voting for their teams. And that's Jeez. why these same teams got uh, got voted state championships, uh, state champions every year. And um, so Ed, Ed called around, and he said, this Benedictine team deserves 
to get some votes for the maybe win the state championship on on the AP ballot, and so he called all the TV stations, and they all all had they were all AP members, and he said, uh, "Who who votes in the high school football poll for you? None of them, none of them." And then all the radio stations here in Cleveland, nobody exercised their right to vote. Nobody voted in the AP poll, so that's why, Ed, the the, the um, the Cleveland schools would get one vote. That was the plain dealer's vote, the only one. But there were really about 15 potential people who, who, who could vote. <clears throat> you know, the, the, um, all the, uh, the, the, anyway, Ed stuffed the ballot box. He got every, he said, can I vote for you? I'll vote for you. So he did. He voted for everybody. He stuffed the ballot box. And he got Benedict and voted state champion in 1957. And, of course, there's no denying that they deserved it. But if Ed Shea hadn't collected, I'll voted for all those radio and TV stations, why they never would have been elected state champion. Oh, wow. So, that is So there are some, uh, there are some wild stories <laughs> from the past. Okay. Well, you've done a, you've done a fantastic now, listen, job. Listen, so. Chris, I can't imagine that... <laughs> If you're still holding an audience after all this, God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm sure they're they're sticking around listening to your stories. They are they are terrific. So, and we'll end it there. But I, I want to give you, you know, I like to do what they call shameless plugs. So please tell us about the four books that you've written. So it's okay. past the nuts. Crazy with well, the, the papers let me see, to prove it. The first it. one was crazy with the papers to prove it, and okay. I thought, I thought that that would be the you know the one book that I write, and um, but it went so well that I just people would come up to me and say, hey you know you should have written about this or that what yeah okay you're you're you're, you're right <laughs> okay so I wrote a second book, and that went over so well I wrote a third book, and then I started to. T- to sort of count on that money every year, so I wrote a fourth book, <laughs> and <laughs> nice. uh, and you know now I've I've got enough material to write a fifth book if I can get down. I've got to to discipline myself to actually sit down at this computer and get it written. Everything, but I do everything now, Chris, in slow motion. It takes me so long to do everything. It takes me so long to take a shower. It takes me so long to get dressed. It takes me so long to, okay, get my coat on, and we're going to go out into the cold. And, uh, yeah, you know, there was a time when I could drink eight Miller Lights at night and bounce back the next day. (laughs) Not a chance now. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Now I have a couple of red wines, and that's my party. (laughs) (laughs) so dan coglin thank you so much for sharing your stories chris i I truly oh by the way well let me finish that shameless plug my publisher is gray and company they're a cleveland company on east 40th street um you can order my books through gray and company and they're all, of course, they're in all the bookstores, but there are not many bookstores left anymore. Um, but you can get them. But uh, you can here in Cleveland area, you can use usually in the 
you know the the bookstores you might you might find a couple of copies in their bookstores especially those that have like Barnes and Noble why uh, they have a a local authors section usually and um, or or you might run into me somewhere and you might buy a book from me for fifteen dollars out of the trunk of my car the trunk of my car <laughs> is a tax-free zone <laughs> Oh, I love it. I love it. So anyway, I'm following your career uh, in boxing and things like that. Boy, you've uh, you've really broadened out. The uh, I remember you as a as a football player, St. Ed's, North Carolina State, and uh, and now you're into boxing too. And that's uh, so you're guy after my own heart. So, I'm trying to be like you. Let me, let me I'm tell trying you about, to be like you. <laughs> oh, let me let me tell now. Let me tell you about one boxing story. Okay. It's in the St. Ed's gym, 19, oh, the winter of 52, 53. I'm a freshman at St. Ed's. And back then the Fathers Club was doing stuff. They were big at St. Ed's in those early days. And uh, the, so Fathers Club would put on a boxing tournament every year. And they would bring in Golden Gloves fighters and maybe a couple of pros. But, but that, back then, the Golden Gloves fighters, why, they all made 25 or 50 bucks, uh, you know, a fight on, on uh, amateur cards. But they got it uh, under the table, and nobody uh, worried about that. So anyway, I'm there, and, and they, had, uh, they were using uh, the, fresh, my locker room, the freshman locker room for the, uh, the locker room for the fighters. And they would dress there, and they... So anyway, so I'm there naturally, um, and there this one fighter. He gets gets a pretty b- bad cut on his eye, around his eye, and so they he heads down out of the gym and goes down the steps to the locker room. So I follow him down there. I want to see, you know, how they're going to patch this guy up. And so nobody stops me. I go right into the locker room with him. And hell, it's my locker room. And uh, <laughs> so they got this. this he's standing up there and. And uh, the doctor is standing there. With the, he's sewing up his eye, and I'm standing there right next to him, and I'm watching that needle go in and out of this cut, like right above his eye, right above. And I'm mesmerized by this. I'm watching this needle go in and out, and I get dizzy and woozy, and I'm about to faint. I'm about to fall over. And finally, I gathered myself, and I had to look away. And I got out of there. So I would have suddenly, uh, they would have been patching me up then uh, <laughs> after they got this guy sewed up. Then no, no Novocaine, no nothing. They just start sewing. Just start sewing. So, yes. <laughs> so anyway, that was the start of my boxing career at the... Uh, uh, yeah, the, so anyway, that's it. I wrap it up. I wrap it up now. That's a wrap. I'm signing off. Chris, thank, <laughs> thanks so much for putting me on your air. Well, I, I, it's a privilege to have you, and I wish you a, a Merry Christmas, you and your family. Thank you very much. So, yes. I know it, it, it's a valuable gift to have you come on my show, the Chris Williams Podcast Hour, 
and you're going to make me famous, and I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, by, by the way, <laughs> since I ended this, there's an, an Irish goodbye. This is, uh, since I ended this on the, the Father's Club boxing show at St. Ed's, so uh, later on, the, one of the, the movers and shakers in the Father's Club, a uh, guy named Joe Holland, well, he died in, uh, oh, I don't know, 78 or so, just before Christmas of 78 or 79. And uh, so I, out of, I didn't really know him. But uh, out of respect to him and how I remembered what he did for the Father's Club at St. Ed's, and, uh, I go up to Magari's funeral home for his wake. And who do I meet up there but my wife? We, we didn't know each other yet. But I met her at McGorry's funeral home because the the guy who put on the boxing shows at St. Ed's, Joe Holland, died, and, and his he had three sons who went to St. Ed's. And so, uh, anyway, there um, one of his sons. Anyway, my wife's sister was married to one of the Holland boys, and so I'm introduced to her, and I wind up uh, marrying her. Oh wow! So if um, if Joe Holland doesn't put on a boxing show at St. Ed's, I never meet my wife. <laughs> so anyway, that's it. it. Now I'm gonna I'm that's, I'm definitely gonna stop now. <laughs> All right. So I'm well, going again. I Dan Coughlin, it is a pre- it is a pleasure to have you on the show. And I know that your listeners uh, they they were ready to sign off long ago. So goodbye to them. <laughs> and uh, Chris, you're one of the all-time greats from St. Ed's. It's an honor to be on your show. Signing off. Uh, thank bye you. bye. <laughs>